Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Archives Guy podcast. Episode 2. So you want to build a settlement, huh? I want to start this episode by expressing my overwhelming gratitude to everyone who downloaded, listened, and followed the Archives Guy podcast prologue in episode 1. Thank you to everyone for your love and support. Uh, the last time I checked, there were almost 250 downloads. Uh, the support and the encouragement, the follows, the shares, they mean the world to me. Um, I won't forget it. It means a lot to have so many people take interest in this History Nerds little project. If you haven't already checked it out, have a listen to the previous episode and the prologue and give the podcast a follow. It's available on Spotify and Podbean uh, and will eventually be available on uh, Apple and Google as well as Audible from Amazon. If you're having trouble finding it, uh, give me a shout at archivesguypodcast at gmail.com or check out the Facebook page uh, or the Instagram page and contact me from there. I definitely want to be able to help uh, anyone who wants to listen to it uh, to, to find it, okay? So I want to also give a special shout out to Chatworthy Digital Marketing for their help in designing the Archives Guy podcast logo. Uh, Chatworthy uh, provides uh, marketing and communication services to businesses in Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo, and the surrounding areas. So if you're looking for help with any digital marketing, check them out at chatworthy.ca. Amazing. Uh, we started the podcast uh, with the last episode discussing uh, an underdocumented area of local history with pre-European settlement and indigenous history. I'm looking to explore this area again once I've been able to do a little bit more research. Uh, we want to. We talked about how um, indigenous peoples have been in the Cambridge area dating back thousands of years. We touched on the physical evidence left behind uh, with the archaeological site that uh, was found on Myers Road. We then went over the Haldeman proclamation, proclamation granting six miles on either side of the Grand River to the Six Nations, and we touched on the fact that that's a still a controversial topic to this day. I look forward to revisiting this topic in the future. As always, I'm not an expert on this topic, uh, so any feedback is always appreciated. Next up, we move on to the beginning of European settlement in the area. We're going to start with Galt, or should I say Shades Mills. I know, I know, Galt. It's always Galt first. I get it. Remember, though, I'm a Preston guy, and I'm not playing favorites here. Oh, and Hespler, don't you worry. We're going to save the best for last. I haven't forgotten about you. To talk about the history of Galt, we have to go back to where we ended last week, in the late 1700s. By 1795, Chief Joseph Brandt of the Six Nations had begun the process of selling much of the land along the Grand River to European land speculators. The land that would become Galt covered a decent part of this land. James Young was one of the um, earliest, uh, actually wrote one of the earliest local history books uh, called Reminiscences of the Early History of Galt and the Settlement of Dumfries. He notes that five blocks of land were sold by the Six Nations around this time, some of which we'll discuss in future episodes, including Block 2, of which Preston, Blair, and Hespler um, would rise from. However, for today's episode, the focus is squarely on Block 1. This land was initially purchased by a, name, a man by the name of Philip Stedman of Niagara. He purchased the lands known as Block 1, which consisted of 94,305 acres for 8,841 pounds. Unfortunately, Mr. Stedman wasn't long for this world and died a few uh, years later, and his sister, Susanna Sparkman, inherited it. She had no interest in developing the land, and it was basically um, a whole lot of wilderness at that point, so she and her husband sold the land in turn to Thomas Clark. 
The funny thing is, is no principal money agreed upon had been paid um, up uh, to that point, according to James Young. And Mr. Clark executed a mortgage uh, with the trustees of the Six Nations for £8,841 plus interest. It's at this point that things change, and in a big way. You see, Thomas Clark isn't going to be in the picture for long either. He's about to take a bow and make uh, way for his cousin, a man who will become synonymous with synonymous with what would become Galt. I'm talking about the Honorable, Honorable William Dixon Sr. You can't talk about the history of Galt without talking about its founder, so we're going to talk about the life of William Dixon. Dixon was born in Scotland, specifically Dumfries, hence the name of the new settlement, in 1769. He eventually came to Canada in 1792 and began practicing law in Niagara. There, he made quite a name for himself. Now for the good stuff. He was an active participant in the War of 1812, and he was actually taken prisoner during the war at one point and sent to New York State. He was eventually released on parole, but it almost didn't happen as an attempt was made to keep him prisoner due to the fact that he allegedly killed another man in, you guessed it, a good old-fashioned duel. He was released as um, he uh, was not actually willingly, uh, not willing to come into the United States, and he was actually a military prisoner. James Young uh, describes the duel in his book. Mr. Weeks, an Irish gentleman, and Mr. Dixon were barristers practicing law in Niagara in 1808, he believes. They were acting as counsel in the same cause. In the course of the trial, the conduct of Governor Simcoe, then dead, came into question and was very coarsely and profanely commented upon by Mr. Weeks in his address to the jury. At the conclusion of his address, Mr. Dixon rose and addressed himself to the court and said, As he was engaged in this suit on the same side of his learned friend, it might be supposed that he concurred in all he had said to the jury, whereas he disapproved and condemned the manner in which his learned friend spoke of Governor Simcoe, and considered the remarks as unjustifiable, and he wished it to be distinctly understood that they did not meet with his approval. Mr. Weeks and Mr. Dixon met the same evening, and there was no apparent interruption to the good understanding between them. During the night, however, some friends of Mr. Weeks impressed upon his mind that Mr. Dixon had insulted him in open court, and that he must challenge him, which he did. Mr. Dixon accepted it, and the duel was fought opposite the town of Niagara behind the American fort. At this first exchange of shots, Mr. Weeks fell, mortally wounded, only living three hours. After this rather insane event and his experience in the War of 1812, Dixon uh, was determined um, to come into possession of land and begin uh, the development of a settlement. Rewind a bit and let's go back to Thomas Clark. He purchased Block 1 from Susanna Sparkman, who inherited it from her recently deceased brother, Philip Stedman. Clark would now sell the land to William Dixon. Dixon would purchase the land for £15,000 and take on the £8,841 mortgage as well. This would total about £24,000, or roughly $1 per acre. You've just come into possession of 94,000 acres of land along a major river with ample water power and incredible farming land. Now what? Dixon's a businessman. He needs someone a little more hands-on. Enter Absalon Shade. 
Absalon Shade was born in Wyoming County, uh, Wyoming County, Pennsylvania, in 1793. He would eventually find his way to Buffalo, New York, working as a carpenter. He even, uh, first encountered uh, Mr. Dixon when he applied to secure the contract for the construction of a courthouse in Niagara. He would uh, be unsuccessful in that endeavor, but uh, he would impress uh, Dixon to the point where uh, Dixon would seek Shade's help in this newly acquired uh, his newly acquired lands um, along the Grand River. Shade accepted, and the rest, you know, as they say, is history. As much as Dixon was the founder of Galt and the money behind the settlement, Shades, in his, uh, in many ways, uh, the mind behind it and the man who did much of the heavy lifting and shaping a settlement out of the wilderness. James Young describes um, Shade as a man of unusual energy and force of character. He had these like steely, bluish gray eyes, like very, very intense. Um, he was re- uh, willing, to, uh, ready, and willing to take on uh, the task of building a settlement, and he would more than exceed the expectations. Um, he seems to have had much more um, comfort um, being in the wilderness than his uh, Niagara-based patron Dixon. In 1816, the adventure in building a settlement would begin when Dixon and Shade decided it was time to finally visit these newly purchased lands. According to Young, Dixon didn't even know much about the quality of his new land, only what he had read in published reports or what he'd heard from other people. Um, in July, they set out to finally see Dumfries uh, for themselves. They would head west via the Governor's Road, which was the only way to the western part of what would uh, eventually become Ontario. It was still Upper Canada at this point. They would end up at the Grand uh, River near Paris. At this point, they required the help of an Indian guide, as Young describes it. They would travel up the east part of the Grand using an extensively used Indian trail. This trail was so narrow that you could barely fit a single horse across it. As they journeyed up the river, they would examine the area looking for a spot to begin their settlement. At this time... uh, You needed to use the river for power, so finding an ideal spot was a must. It didn't help that what would become Galt was a complete wilderness, as far from civilization as you could find. Nothing but forests and swamps. The closest settlement was Blair, or the nearby Mennonite community uh, that would uh, later be called Preston. They eventually came across a creek that flowed into the river. Shade would examine it to see if it could sufficiently be used to harness the power of the river. They found the remains of an aborted attempt at building a mill um, along the river. Young tells the story of one Alexander Miller of Niagara who had struck a bargain with the indigenous peoples for a small tract of land where he built a small building, the remains of which were found by Shade. The travelers would continue along the river until they came to roughly where the Main Street Bridge stands today. Shade went off on his own and attempted to find higher ground to get a better view of the area. Some claim that he ended up at the top of Main Street, where Centennial Park is today, to view the area. I can only imagine what he saw. Imagine what that incredible view must have been like without any buildings. I wish I could have seen what it looked like before the settlement was built. It was at this point that the guide became a little concerned with Shade's prolonged absence. Then Shade returned and proclaimed that this was the site for the settlement. It was this point uh, getting pretty late in the day and the sun was beginning to set. The men then traveled further up the river until they came to an opening in the trail. They saw signs of life. They would come across an adventurous settler named Nathaniel Dodge, who, like Shade, was also originally from Pennsylvania. 
he had, according to Young, located on the flats forming part of what is now Crookston Park. He would generously take in the travelers for the night and treat them as if they were his own family. The next day, the travelers would return to the area of what would be called Mill Creek and take another look at the area. They would be even more certain that this was the spot for their settlement. At this point, Dixon would depart, headed in the direction of Flamborough. Shade wanted to continue to explore the area, so he set off with the guide. Um, he would end up traveling to what became St. George, part of Brantford, and Ayr. It's amazing that he was able to travel around so much when you consider how hard it was to navigate the area at the time. Shade seems to have really enjoyed the experience, especially the fish from the river he had when he, uh, staying with another settler named Ephraim Munson and his wife. You, for years afterwards, he would talk about like how much he enjoyed that uh, experience. After this adventure, Shade would rejoin Dixon, and now, more than ever, they were motivated to create a new settlement. According to Young's book, legend has it that Shade actually returned to the wilderness that would become Galt with only $100 in his tools. It was now time for Shade's mills to become a reality. The first thing that needed to be completed was a full survey of the lands. That was uh, done in the fall uh, by the fall of 1816. The first building erected was a wooden structure close to the corner of Water and Main Streets. For years, it was used as a store and as a residence for Shade and his wife. Dixon himself still maintained his primary residence in Niagara, but traveled often to his new settlement to assist Shade with whatever was needed. He was very keen on helping any potential new settlers. Another important step for building a settlement uh, is for a sustainable, sustainable source of food. This was done by Shade fixing up the abandoned mill he and Dixon um, and his other uh, companion uh, came across when first visiting the lands. It wasn't the greatest foot, uh, food, as um, Young notes, but it was better than pounding wheat into a hole in a stump. The first few years of the settlement saw little growth. In fact, the total population consisted of about 160. However, another government source puts the number at 63 people um, by 1818. The true number was probably somewhere in the middle. Um, Galt would uh, struggle quite a bit compared to its neighbors, such as Preston, uh, at first. Its neighbors were primarily close-knit German-speaking Mennonite communities, and most of the Scottish immigration into Upper Canada was concentrated along Lake Ontario and in the eastern part of um, Ontario in places such as Kingston. A few sources noted that only about 10 buildings existed in Galt in 1820, two or three longhouses, a distillery, and a blacksmith shop. Dixon had a bridge built over the Grand to connect both sides of the river. This bridge would be where the Main Street Bridge exists today. According to the University of Waterloo professor Ken McLaughlin in his book Cambridge, The Making of a Canadian City, he notes that Dixon was determined to speed up the growth of his new settlement. He would look to his homeland of Scotland, specifically Dumfrieshire, and recruit hard-working settlers. He did this by writing to influential friends in Scotland. He even sent envoys to Scotland to lobby on his behalf. This was a turning point, as these groups of people would begin to come and settle in Galt. The population grew from about 163 in 1817 to more than 4,000 by 1834. By 1825, Shades Mills was starting to grow quite nicely. To continue this growth, the settlement sought uh, to build its first post office. Now, to have a post office required the settlement to have an official name, and Shades Mills was a practical but unofficial name for the small village. 
Dixon used this as an opportunity to rechristen it as Galt, after his former schoolmate and famed Scottish novelist John Galt. Galt was also the Canada Company commissioner who was instrumental in the founding of Guelph and Goderich, Ontario. It can't be stated how unpopular this name change was at the time. The citizens basically ignored the name Galt and continued to refer to it as Shades Mills. It wasn't until 1827 when John Galt uh, himself visited at Dixon's invitation that the population was finally won over. Now you think, if you're Absol on Shade, you'd be a little annoyed that the settlement you helped build and that bared your name for a time was now renamed after a guy who literally visited it once. But nope, not Shade. He was a shrewd businessman and used this as an opportunity to secure the work of constructing a road between Galt and the Canada Company Commission's new city of Guelph, up the road. This would be a precursor to the present, uh, present Highway 24. An interesting fact is that this, um, the time this road was built, it would take a four, full four days to reach Guelph from Galt by road. It wasn't until the railway was built that this would significantly change. Another big change that occurred was that Mr. Dixon himself finally moved to the village of Galt in 1827 after the death of his wife Charlotte. He left his law practice behind in Niagara and would live in this new settlement until 1836. Dixon would return to Niagara eventually and live the rest of his life, passing away in 1846, leaving behind a thriving settlement. His son, William Jr., would go on to manage his father's lands and make his own mark on the area. He donated the lands that became Dixon School and Dixon Park. His home on 16 Bing Avenue, also known as Kirkmichael, was built in around 1832 and is one of the most historic homes in the area and one of the last physical connections to the Dixon family. William Dixon Sr.'s granddaughter, Florence, would be greatly influential in the building of the Dixon Hill area of Cambridge, encompassing the area that includes Bing Avenue and much of the surrounding area. The Dixon family is synonymous with Galt, and rightly so. Without the desires of William Sr. to build the new Scottish settlement in the middle of nowhere, who knows how this area would have developed. It must also be said that just as much as Dixon, the history of Galt cannot be discussed without the name Absalon Shade, in many ways more so than Dixon, as Shade did much of the day-to-day work to bring the settlement to life. He was there from 1816 until his death in 1862. He was responsible for how the Galt Corps would develop with his red and white stores. One was used for credit, the other for cash, and were located roughly in the area of Main and Water Street. He would uh, be the first postmaster and, along with Dixon, helped set up many of the churches that dominate the Galt landscape, most famously Trinity Anglican Church. As we discussed, he helped get the road between Guelph and Galt built and was involved with the beginnings of the Gore Bank and the Galt and Guelph uh, Railway. He would hold almost every nominated or elected political office over a 30-year period. He was a towering figure in the history of Galt and is deserving of all acknowledgments he has received. Dixon the money and Shade the carpenter. They laid the foundation for what became the city of Galt, now part of the city of Cambridge. I hope you have a better understanding of the early uh, settlement of Galt and these two hugely influential figures. You'll notice that we've only covered the history of Galt until about 1827. That's because this episode is already bursting at the seams. There's so much more we can discuss, and I plan on doing follow-ups on more specific topics uh, to take us further into the history of Galt. This week's book recommendation is an easy one. James Young's reminiscence of the early history of Galt and the settlement of Dumfries. 
Young was a very prominent Galt citizen who would run the Dumfries Reformer newspaper, the major competitor of the Galt Reporter, for 10 years and serve as Galt's first MP from Confederation in 1867 and being re-elected in 1872 and 1874. This book is essential to understanding the early history of Galt, as it's as close to a primary source as we have, as it was written by someone who lived in the 19th century and who had access to people who were here when Galt was founded. It's widely available online, and you can view it at the Cambridge Archives or the local library. Next time, we're going to take a break from settlements and do our first themed episode. I'm really excited uh, to do this, uh, as I've had a lot of people um, tell me that they're really looking forward to this. With it now being fall, I thought I'd do a Halloween-themed episode. So we're going to talk about a few local ghost uh, stories and true crime stories. I'm not sure how many we'll cover, but we'll always come back to this topic as it's quite a popular one. As always, I'm open to any suggestions for topics. If you have any uh, local history questions, free, feel free to submit them to archivesguypodcast at gmail.com or send a message to the Facebook page or the Instagram page. If you haven't already had the chance follow them um, to follow them, please do. Thanks for joining me on the Archives Guy podcast as we continue to explore our story. We'll see you again soon.